Lamppost listener. My name is Daniel. My name is Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter eight of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, What Happened After Dinner. You caught me off guard a little bit there with the my name is Phil, not just I'm Phil uh, on this episode. Like my dad says, variety is the spice of life. There you go. (laughs) Call me up just a a tiny bit. Uh, Yeah, it makes it exciting, I guess, here. So we have today episode eight. Boy, oh boy, do we got a big one here. This is a chapter with almost – it's just dialogue, really. Like the entire thing is just a conversation. A lot of exposition. Yeah, a ton of exposition. Uh, And it's – I, I'm just I'm I'm kind of overwhelmed to be honest. As we start this episode, we're trying to keep our episodes around the 30 minute mark, and I'm worried we're gonna go long today. So we'll we'll try our best, listeners, to kind of keep stay around that that mark. I'd be curious how long an episode people are used to listening to. I'm used to around one hour. What do you usually listen to? When I listen to podcasts, you mean? Yeah, mine are like um, maybe an hour, hour and a half. I would – yeah, you listen to such long podcasts. I either listen to short podcasts around like 20 minutes or longer podcasts like about an hour. But I – I mean the reason that I felt like with the 30 minutes works for us, I think about a podcast I listen to that goes through some of Tolkien's works and they'll go through like a chapter of the, the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit in an hour, hour and a half or so. And there's just so much more to unpack there than there is in a chapter of Narnia that I felt I felt like we'd be if we were going that same length we'd be stretching things out too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I also feel like with us that I'd rather I'd rather listeners be like, oh man, I wish they just talked a little bit more than all right, cool. There's 20 minutes left, but I'm checking out because this thing's so long. Definitely, always leave them wanting more. Yeah, exactly. So you know what we should do? Let's um, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode right here. Thank you so much for listening to the Lamp Post Listener. Next time we'll uh, talk about Chapter Nine. Chapter Nine. We're going to end the witch's house. Uh, <laughs> you know, we will. We'll talk about this chapter. So Phil, let's talk about where we left off. Well, I'll do that because you're going to do the chapter summary. All right. So we left the Pevensies with. Nope. Let me stop. Let me actually start, Phil, with some addendums or corrections I actually have before we get into the last chapter and then your chapter summary. Did you have anything first? I have two things, but I wanted to ask you. Nope. Let's hear yours. Yeah. So I was editing the last episode where we brought up the Silver Chair adaptation that's being made right now and Joe Johnston. And I said he directed the first Avengers movie. I obviously did not mean he directed the first Avengers movie. That's obviously Joss Whedon. I meant to say he directed the first Avenger, as in Captain America, the first Avenger. But then when I listened to it, I was like, oh no, I'm going to lose all my nerd credibility because it sounds (laughs) like I said. Uh, I just want listeners to know I do know who directed uh, that movie. (laughs) I just, I said the first Avengers instead of the first Avenger. And then the second thing, which is pertains more to Narnia itself, is I think in the second chapter, Phil, you and I were talking about the description of the Narnians uh, that Mr. Tumnus gives us. And when I was reading that, I said satyrs instead of satyrs. So I just want to go back and correct All the difference we, in the world. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's funny as I was listening to different versions of it. I heard someone talking about it and they said Seder. And I was like, oh man, I think I pronounced that wrong the last time I said it. And so I went and found a couple of different people saying it like on YouTube and stuff. And actually the British 
I mean, I could be wrong, but from what I found on the internet is the British pronunciation of it is sadder and more of the American pronunciation is sadder. So technically, I guess I just said it in the more British way, but but I'm an American, so to I guess I have to say it. For people who don't know you too well, you are the kind of person who bought Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone instead of Harry Potter yes. and the Sorcerer's Stone. But this was unknowingly. I actually I think that's even come up on the podcast before. I this was I unknowingly said it in the British way. I guess my uh, ancestry goes back a couple hundred years to Great Britain, so maybe that's just my my uh, my ancestry's coming out here. Yes, after people have been telling you your whole life you don't fit in. Turns out you're just in the wrong place. Yeah, I just was in the wrong place. That's, That's all. From it was. Fast and Furious Three. <laughs> all right, I've never seen any of them. Uh, <laughs> how are you quoting? Oh, no, we got to move on. All right, we, we digress. We digress. All right, so we left the Pevensies in our last episode. We left them in the Beavers, their hut, I guess, outside of the dam, finishing up dinner, and it was time for them to get down to business, as they said. Do you want to go ahead and give us our chapter summary for Chapter Eight, Phil? I am ready. Let's go. The Forge children learn from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that Mr. Tumnus has no doubt been taken to the witch's house. Mr. Beaver says there is no way to get in and out of the house alive, but that there is hope, since Aslan is on the move. Aslan is a lion, the lord of the whole wood, and not there very often, but according to an old rhyme he will bring an end to winter. A plan is set to go meet Aslan, and details of why exactly the witch fears Children of Adam are revealed. Then suddenly, Peter points out that Edmund is missing. They can't follow him, since according to Mr. Beaver, it will lead them into a trap. The trouble, they realize, is that if he has been gone as long as they think, they will need to leave as soon as possible. I really like that you've highlighted the actual events that take place in this chapter, and not the exposition part because that means we get to break it down um piece here by piece. yeah it, piece by piece i that was a really that's so interesting and i i really like that we're we have this part of the show because i would have I, honestly if i had done the chapter summary i would have focused probably only on the exposition of oh mm. who who exactly is aslan i would have probably talked about the rhymes and i love that you didn't and that we have such a different takeaway from this chapter which is i i like that we have those different perspectives yeah definitely so the children ask about who Aslan is, and you wrote it down in your chapter summary about him being, you know, the lord of the wood. We don't see, he doesn't come by very often, but when he does, there's a lot of hope, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to jump, I'm on page 79 in my book. Again, we're reading out a different book, so I don't know if you're on the same page here. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you were not on the same page. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm on page 146 for <laughs> oh, people following along right. in the, the complete collection. So... They're, they're asking questions about Aslan, and we get to this section where Edmund has a question. She won't turn him into stone, too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, oh, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. <laughs> Wrong will be right. When Aslan comes in sight, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. <laughs> Is that how you're supposed to say it again? It doesn't it's, rhyme if you don't say it like that. <laughs> it's a slant rhyme. Yeah, there you go. Spring again. What, 
So this is the first of three prophecies we get. Let's. Do you want to talk about this one? So one thing that stands out here is the way they uh, communicate time. He doesn't say Aslan hasn't been here for 40 years or hasn't been here for 60 years. Instead, he says Aslan hasn't been here um, in my time or my father's time. And that's such an interesting way. I don't, you know, I just kind of assume that it's uh, the, I just assume that it's the same time frame for having children as humans. So it sounds like it's been two generations since Aslan has been there. Um, But it also kind of communicates that he hasn't been there in a very long time. Like he doesn't remember and his father doesn't remember. Yeah. There's no stories that are going to be, you know, passed down just from the last generation. This like this is something that is. I think they even use time out of mind. So this is come down. It's it's almost a legend at this point, right? Right. The, as the prophecies go on throughout this chapter, we actually get a, a, f- a fuller story of what Aslan's return means. So let's let's keep reading. Is that cool? Yep. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. Shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, Dr. Aviv, that's what I've brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Now let's stop right there because there's even more that we've got to talk about in just the next. I mean, this whole ugh, this whole section just has so much to unpack. But I want to talk about some Christian themes. So we get two kind of parts of the Trinity. We get, obviously, the metaphor, I guess you could say, of the emperor beyond the sea almost as kind of like God the Father, right? And then we get Aslan as kind of the incarnation of that divinity here in Narnia. And I'm actually interested in looking at and seeing if there is any Holy Spirit depiction in these books. I, have, I haven't come across it yet, but I'm, I'm sure that we might find some stuff as we go along. Have you seen any of that, any of the kind of the, the Trinity's depiction in the book so far? Not of the Holy Spirit, but I did notice when you were reading it this time, right at the end of um, one of his sentences, he says, he'll settle the White Queen all right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. Oh, yeah. And I think that I mean, that's like super clear and it doesn't like it makes a little more sense because for this story, we know what happens. But um, I just love that, you know, it's not people who are going to save anyone. It's, you know, you can lead someone to Christ, but Christ is going to be the one to save you. Yeah. And, and then we even see that, like, God uses people to accomplish his plans in the same way that Aslan, who is perfectly beavers doing. Yeah, that's true. Or beavers. God is perfectly capable. Or Aslan is perfectly capable of doing all this on his own, but he he chooses to use, you know, humans and use beavers, like you said. And I think there's also that, you know, kind of relationship that we have with God. Like God chooses to use humans to accomplish his plans. I also like that Aslan is this living, breathing creature. He's accessible. He's relatable like Christ, right? Someone who's, I know that in this case, he's obviously a lion. None of the children are lions. I've never been a lion. You've never been a lion. I think most of our listeners probably have not been a lion. So we don't relate to Aslan in that same way, but he is, he's not this emperor beyond this sea, you know, way out there where we haven't been. He's a, he's a lion who's been to Narnia before, who's a, a talking beast in the same way that the beavers are and that the fawn and 
all these other animals are as well too. And so he, he there's an accessible element to him that I think we also see when we look at scripture, we see in, in Christ as well, that Christ was fully human. He can relate to our struggles in a way that we might maybe don't get when we just go and read the Old Testament, you know? Yeah, for sure. Let's keep reading because there's still so much to unpack here. Do you want to read or do you want me to keep going? You keep going. All right. Ooh, said Susan. <laughs> She's so excited or scared, I guess. <laughs> I thought he'd be... I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That's your will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either braver than most, or else just silly. Then he he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That that quote, when they, I mean, they find out he's a lion, and that, is he, pause, quite safe? Yeah. It, that's such a great line, because the... The name has had an effect on all of them, but then finding out he's a lion has an even stronger effect. And I think that growing up around zoos, you know, of course, we're never in the actual area with the lion, but with the Lion King and then with zoos and like TV shows, I don't know if we're as scared of lions as we should be. But that is kind of scary. Like, I'm going to go take you to go see this lion and there's not going to be a glass cage to protect you. Yeah, it's it's this beautiful depiction of Aslan as being this embodiment or this like almost this marriage of ultimate peace and ultimate power. And that's a terrifying thing. Right. Right? Like and there's a son of the great emperor beyond the sea. So yeah, he's regal too. Like there's this this kingly element. I mean, there's it's almost you know, I just mentioned him being ex- uh, accessible and relatable in some ways, but then there's also this element where there's a no way is he relatable, right? And I, I think that's right. kind of this idea of Christ as being what is really hard for us as humans to understand, of being both fully human and fully divine at the same time, like 100% one thing and 100% of the other thing, which doesn't really work out statistically. Like That doesn't work out mathematically. Right. There's some such clear, you know— parallels to Christ here. Like, Jesus isn't a, a tame savior, right? Like, I'm just going to paraphrase some things, but I mean, he says some pretty crazy stuff. Like, you know, hate your family. You know, sell everything that you have. Hating someone is murder. Love your enemies. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Like, those are pretty... It doesn't sound like someone who's very tame. I even right. think about, like, images of him dealing with Pharisees. It'd be terrifying to meet him in real life, right? Like, you'd be... And not in a, oh, what is he going to do to me? But in, I just, I don't know what to expect. I, I don't know how to handle this situation. And I love Aslan depicted in that way. Right. And we also, we get a, a clear power dynamic between the witch and Aslan. So we've already heard all this bad stuff about the witch, right? Who, by the way, I keep referring to her as the queen in my head. And it's only here in chapter eight that I'm able to say the witch without pausing before saying um, her title. I, I see where your allegiances lie in this book. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'll talk about this more in the next chapter, but I think I relate to Edmund a little bit too much for my own comfort. Um, some of the stuff that his character does is just like, I'm like, oof, that's that's me. I, I mean, yeah. I think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to do is, is have you relate to, to Edmund. 
but he's like he's such a snot i'm like i don't want to do that <laughs> we don't want every character to be comfortable but yeah so we we know who the witch is we know that she's powerful at this point we know that she can turn people into stone but not aslan and that's new and she's like the terror she's the one who's like brought eternal winter and now someone is going to be able to break that and 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 again remember i talked about last chapter that we ended with that slight bit of hope right that after we've now heard aslan's name it's oh the you know there's new snow coming down so no one could track you there's this this tiny little bit of hope and then this chapter is kind of it's just that it's like we've opened that box there's so much hope here. It's almost like what, the witch isn't going to be able to do anything. And it almost feels like C.S. Lewis is taking away any kind of like stakes here. Like how many times are you reading a story where about, according to my Kindle, we're 42% of the way in. And our main antagonist who's been built up as this huge ruler over this magical land. And it's like, oh, this, this guy, he's going to easily take care of this. Like, you know what I mean? 42% of the way in the book. Like, you don't have to worry about her. She's going to easily destroy, or she's going to easily be destroyed by him. She's not even going to be able to stand and look at our, you know, at this character. And I, that's beautiful, right? Like, we see that in scripture. The fact that we know the ending, as, as Christians, if you approach this with a Christian worldview, we know the ending of the story, right? Sure. And I think it's, and it's that same kind of thing. I think there are two things working against that, though. So far, we have two sides of the story, and... Edmund makes some good points here and there, and I know I'm relating to Edmund too much again, but he kind of calls into question some of this stuff, and you know he's gonna he's gonna sneak out here in just a second, and we'll get his perspective on things too. But if Aslan is so powerful, you kind of wonder, well, like why isn't everything fixed right now? And I think that translates to modern day stuff as well. I, one of the most common questions I hear is, if God is so good. Why do bad things happen? Like, if yeah. he can stop it, why doesn't he stop it? That's a really good thing. I had not thought of that at all. I love that. I, th- I think you're right, because, you know, I'm reading it as this, oh, my goodness, we all know the ending here, and, oh, it's going to be, you know, because we've obviously read this book before. But I love that you're like, we don't know if we can trust the beavers. We've heard Edmund question their authority Throughout the last couple of chapters, like, how do we know we can really trust this guy? We know we can't trust – he says, oh, you can't, everyone knows you can't trust a fawn, right? And now we, we can't really trust the beaver. Obviously, we all know those things. And He's the contrarian here. Yeah, but I, I – man, I, I've never thought of it like that before. I love that. Well, That's here's, a, here's one other question for you. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this. So assuming people are familiar at least somewhat with the, the story of Christ – Christ comes to the earth as a child and then 30 years later starts his ministry and then at 33 is on the cross and dies and then rises again. Um, But in this story, it sounds like Aslan's been there before, just not recently. That part doesn't directly translate. So how do you, how do you interpret that? What do you think is going on there? Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to use all the correct terminology, like all the correct literary terminology here so you have to listeners will have to forgive me and please if you have if, if i say things wrong i would love to be corrected at uh the narnia podcast at gmail.com but i think this is where we can't actually really say that aslan is an allegory for jesus because it, it's not a one-to-one ratio right like it, it really doesn't work out that way this is a story that in some ways parallels that, but this is not a one-for-one, one, oh, everything happens the exact same way. I mean, we're going to see 
spoiler alert, the way that things happen at the stone table later on in the story is not the way that things happened with the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's not like a one, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's, it doesn't all perfectly line up, but we can just draw these two pictures side by side and say, look, here's exactly how Jesus and Aslan, everything's the exact same. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Oh, that, I think that's a really good point. We'd, and I wouldn't want it to be mm-hmm. exactly one-to-one. Yeah, so I, I think that's my big takeaway. Is this, this isn't a pure allegory. It just has a lot of themes. And then I could see where someone might say, you know, I could see where we do start to see some bit of allegory. But it's not one for one. So uh, one thing that stood out to me was the whole part about Lilith and the lineage of the queen herself. So do you know about Adam's first wife, where that comes from or potentially where that comes from? Yes, I think it is pronounced Lilith. I think we're pronouncing it correctly, but who knows? Uh, check in with us next episode if we need to correct ourselves. So Lilith is part of, and again, I just let's go ahead and put this out there. I am not a theologian. I am a lay person in the church, so I'm, I might get some stuff wrong, um, even in just in my history of ancient cultures. So again, just putting that out there. From what I understand and from what I have learned in the past, Lilith is part of both Babylonian and Jewish mythology. So you know, she's we hear it in the book here. She's Adam's first wife. And the story goes more or less that she's made from the same dirt as Adam. So in Genesis, when God creates Adam, creates him from the dirt, we know that Eve in the book of Genesis is made from one of Adam's ribs. She's made after Adam. She's, she, he's, she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, right? Lilith was made of the same dirt as Adam. And there's nothing in the book of Genesis, or even if you go as far back as um, the—I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah. So it's like the Torah, and it was just being passed down orally from generation to generation. And if you even go back and look at that, she's not mentioned at all in that. She comes up later on in some other scrolls and some other mythology. She's not in Scripture. And part of the reason I don't know too much about it. Exactly, because you're not because she's, it's not in the, the book of Genesis. It's not there. She's actually mostly associated with is kind of like demonic activity, especially regarding children. Like I, I, I don't have like notes in front of me or anything about this, but I, I want to say she's like she like sometimes tries to maybe kidnap children or she like goes like she hurts women in childbirth and stuff like that. And so it, it kind of makes sense nice. that Lewis is including the witch's lineage to be from this person, this thing, right, that would be associated with with hurting children or, you know, pain and and children and stuff like that. I did, one of the things I did look up, I was reading what some scholars had to say because I I didn't know much about her. I'd heard about her a little bit, and it's like, huh, that's interesting because she's not a part of the Christian canon. She's not a part of the Jewish canon, and, and yet she's included here. And... I was trying to figure out why, you know, why was she included? And I did some reading out of that um, Paul Ford book. And then I also just looked up some stuff on the internet. And one thing I kind of found is that scholars almost unanimously concluded that Lewis is not trying to evoke any of the gender implications of this, oh, this is an evil woman kind of thing. But instead is mostly just trying to connect some of Earth's mythology to some of Narnia's mythology to kind of continue to bridge the gap between these two worlds. That he's not trying to say, he's not trying to make any kind of political statement here. Or any, it, there's, It's one of the things where it seems like often, like we might read into this, well, wait a second, why, 
you know, we're, we're taking this, or what is that he's even saying about what does C.S. Lewis believe about, does he really believe that Adam had another wife, even though that's not in scripture? That, that's No, that none of that's really the case. Most scholars are saying this is him just trying to connect some of our mythology uh, here on earth to some of Narnia's mythology. Does that make sense? It does. And purely from a genetics point of view, it sounds like Lilith was Adam's first wife, and then the parents of the witch, like if you go way, way, way back, would be Lilith and then the giants. Is that correct? So Adam's th- not, not involved at all? Yes, and I guess that's why she is of neither of Adam. It's not like she was Adam was her dad and then Lilith would have been her, you know, step not her like great, 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 you know, grandfather, whatever. It's it's he's she's completely separated from Adam and Eve. That's why she's not actually human. But and again, I, I don't I actually think that it's she does come from Adam, but Eve is not involved at all. Uh, but wouldn't that make her partly human then? That that's what I'm confused about. He says there's not a what does he say? There's not a drop of human blood in her. Yeah, he says that. And but and but she says she comes of your father Adam's first wife. So I what I assumed that meant is that she is Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Lilith's Related to Lilith, and then I guess some other man would have had to have had a children. She's from that lineage. She's actually not at all related to Adam and Eve. Yeah, I agree. Again, I this it I, was I, the, it's the dash where he says, "Your father Adam's here, Mister Beaver bowed. Your father Adam's first wife." Yeah, exactly. I, and again, I thought he was is, saying your father Adam. Oh yeah, no, you. He's he's saying your. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, there's one more prophecy we've got to talk about. There's one more prophecy. Let me read it here. Down at Ker Paravel, that's the castle on the seacoast, down at the mouth of this river, which ought to be the capital of the whole country, if all was as it should be. Down at Ker Paravel, there are four thrones, and it's a saying in Narnia time out of mind, that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve sit in these four thrones, then it will be the end not only of the white witch's reign, but of her life. And that is why we had to be so cautious as we came along. For if she knew about you four... Your lives wouldn't be worth a shake of my whiskers. And this is great foreshadowing because we're soon going to find out that somebody's missing. Who's missing? I love how it's revealed. The conversation has so much exposition. You're just really into it. You're learning all this stuff. And then Peter's like, where's Edmund? And that's been done so well in movies before where they just kind of carry the action and they don't show the person. And then you don't even realize they're gone. And then there's like immediate panic. Yeah, it's I love as well, too. Again, I've brought up that Peter, I feel like, has been so quick to forgive. Forgiveness has been a trait of Peter that I never considered before. But as we've been reading through this, I've started to pick up. And that's just my interpretation. But I'm seeing forgiveness being just part of who he is as a character. And again, he's like he's worried about it. I mean, Edmund's been a jerk the entire book. He hasn't really had any signs of, oh, he's really a nice guy. He's been a jerk. Downright beast. Yes, uh, he's been quite beastly. And Peter's like, the first response is like, we got to go help him. Like, where did he go? We got to go. And then we get this almost this very solemn reaction from Mr. Beaver in that he's gone. Like, we, we've got to leave. We got to get out of here. We got to forget at not forget him, but like we got to move on because Mr. Beaver reveals that he's gone to the white witch that he definitely that's that he's not here anymore he snuck off Mr. Beaver's character here is so great because he just he knows he's very wise he knows what's going on 
And he doesn't have to think very long to know that Edmund is on the side of the witch. And he kind of suspected it. This just confirms it. But the way he reveals it to the children um, is just like, like he doesn't, I think he's like not excited about letting them know what their brother has done. Yeah, he has a lot of empathy for the children. Like he, he doesn't feel good about being like, oh yeah, by the way, your brother's a traitor uh, and he's working with the White Witch. Right, like he says, he looks at him and he says treacherous, or he see, said to himself treacherous, and I love that he reveals he's just like, oh, I could tell because it looks like he ate some of her food. <laughs> like, I wonder what you look like after you've eaten her food. That kind of gives <laughs> it away. Do you think? Here's my question for you. Do you think this was a good decision to kind of maybe put this in the back of his head, like, yeah, that guy looks like he's up to no good, or do you? you know, as a way of kind of trying to protect the children? Or do you think he should have spoken up as soon as he saw, like, look, he doesn't look too good. We should probably do something about that. Do you think he made the right decision or should he have done something differently? I do think he made the right decision. Here's why. You've seen stuff like Minority Report where people people haven't actually done the bad thing yet. So unfortunately, you do have to give them a chance to do the right thing and like kind of hope for the best. And I think we've all had experiences like that where we meet someone we're like, this probably isn't going to work out, but you can't just be like, sorry, I'm never going to hang out with you because I suspect that you like Turkish delight or something. I don't know what you would say. (laughs) Yeah. Would you, would you date someone that enjoyed Turkish delight? I would, I would be a very serious conversation before. (laughs) Yeah, but Before you guys start talking about marriage, you'd have to kind of establish the boundaries for Turkish delight. That makes sense. Everybody has their Turkish delight talk. (laughs) <laughs> right before marriage all right so the td tdt like a, is that your version of a dtr that's right <laughs> um, i i love how hopeless lucy gets the, well that sounds awful i don't like that she's hopeless but i love this image of her being hopeless like oh can no one help us wailed lucy and mr beaver responds with only aslan like that's he's our only hope. He's he's the Obi Wan Kenobi, right? He's the only hope that these kids have. Actually, I guess he's supposed to be Jesus, but uh, I think of it more right here as Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, another thing Lucy says is yes," said Lucy, almost in a whisper. "I'm afraid he has." When Mister Beaver says, "Has he ever been here alone?" Mm-hmm. and that's and just like the the realization, so much power in the way she says that and what she says. It's so succinct. It's. I'm yeah. afraid he has. Like she's just—I just imagine her like kind of holding her teacup, kind of looking at the ground, and everyone—it just like this fear and dread like falls on everybody. So we're pretty much at the end of this chapter, Phil. So the kids have decided. Well, really, with Mr. Beavers and Mrs. Beavers' help, they've—they've they've got to leave. Edmund is is most likely gone to the White Witch, which isn't that far away. And she's going to be back soon ready for them because they're not quite sure how much Edmund has heard. He may have heard all about going to meet Aslan at the stone table. They're not sure when he exactly slipped out. Do you have any last thoughts before we wrap this chapter up? I'm a big fan of logistics, and this kind of answers one of the questions we had before about how far away everything is. So if Edmund left about half an hour ago and she's 20 minutes away, it sounds a little bit like a math problem you have in fourth grade where if Edmund's traveling at six miles per hour and then the sledge goes 12 miles an hour and she's 20 minutes away, (laughs) which is like, it's not exact and it doesn't really tell us how far away everything is, but it does give us a 20 minute timeline and they have to pack and get out of there right then. Maybe not even pack. And I love the urgency that comes with that. See, I wasn't going to bring this up because I've already complained enough about 
geography in this book. And I'm just, I'm mostly, I think it for you, it answers some questions. It just gives way more questions for me. Because one, if the evil overlord of the entire kingdom moved in 20 minutes away from you, wouldn't you move? Like, wouldn't you just be like, yeah, like she's, that's kind of close. That doesn't seem like I want to be within 20 minutes of the evil witch. Like, and again, I guess that's maybe 20 minutes on, well, I guess that she's not 20 minutes away. It's saying that if he's been gone the half hour, it's only 20 minutes till she gets there. It still seems like they're relatively close to the witch's house, which I just don't understand why they live so close to her. Why is that? Like, wouldn't you move? You're beavers. You don't have to buy a house. Do you have any idea how hard it is to build a dam? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it is, but like... And how long did the Hoover Dam take? That took forever. But also, she's been queen for quite some time, I think we're led to assume. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it just it just, it just just opens up more questions for me. I uh, bet they were like, oh, if she becomes queen, we're totally moving to Canada. And then she became queen. <laughs> and they and, didn't fall through. And they're like, oh, uh, you know, all my stuff's here. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up, but you did. So, there, I'll just put out that it just, it just has more questions for me. Yeah. So on the next episode, we'll be in chapter nine in the witch's house. And in this chapter, Edmund sneaks off to visit the white witch's castle. And what's going to be really great about this is with this chapter, it's literally been an entire conversation for the most part, except for these last couple pages. And in the next chapter, which I, I, I'm, I think you already read ahead a little bit too, it's mostly just descriptive language for the, a good portion of it about Edmund traveling. So it's kind of a nice juxtaposition of what we've just had, and then we get something completely different in Edmund's travels through Narnia. You can go ahead and follow us into the world of Narnia on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You can also email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show or the book. We would appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts because this helps other listeners find the show and join our read-through. Also, make sure you subscribe to the show and whatever podcast app you like to use so that you can be up to date with the new episodes when they come out on every other Wednesday. Our show's themes were written and created by Kevin McLeod. You can find more of his work in the links in the episode's description below. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we'll be back next time for Chapter 9. See you then.